This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy filling in from Northern New Jersey for the vacationing Joel McCower. On this week's edition, what is former Google Renewable Energy Specialist Neha Palmer up to? Why vertical farming pioneer Aero Farms is expanding into berries? And have you read this week's report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? The answers to these questions and more on this week's Green Biz 350. It's August 13th, 2021. Ah, Friday the 13th. Welcome to another edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me today as co-host is Associate Editor Jesse Klein, patching in from her new-ish digs in Oakland, California. Hey, Jesse. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. How's your new desk? It's good. It took a lot of battling to get it together, but I'm very happy with it. Any plans for this weekend? I know you're a climber. Yeah, I don't know. I have I have some idea this weekend of maybe taking off to Tahoe, but but we'll see how the fires go. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I, I'm going to stop chit-chatting now, and let's let's just go over to the weekend review. Okay. So the first story of the week has to be the report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, more commonly known as the IPCC. Clearly, it's one of those. Not, not frankly, it wasn't that surprising. The 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 sort of urgency that was urged by the scientists in it. Um, we have irreversible climate change happening. Basically, they're saying we've already you know, done enough damage with our industrial emissions for us to be experiencing some impact and some global temperature increases and, and things that are not going to be reversible, like the, the sea level rises are happening. They're going to continue to happen. For me, one of the sort of most striking things was it was basically the the focus on other gases. I've written about super pollutants, um, the so-called super pollutants, things like methane. So that in particular was was interesting for me. What about you? I know we've all sort of spent the week obsessing and being alternately like depressed and optimistic about it, but what jumped out for you, Jesse? Yeah, I think yeah, the obviously the headlines were really, you know, like it's gonna warm up, but how much is up to us, I think was sort of the the biggest takeaway. And I think up to us in some ways is a little misleading because in some ways it's it's up to governments and how much can we really do. And in terms of, you know, for our audience, it's it's how much can CEOs and boards and companies do if if we can't get past what what gov- governments are not able to do. And we really want to see a future that's a little bit more palatable, I guess is the word. And if, and we really need everybody's support to do it. And if governments are dragging their feet or just have to move more slowly because of what they are, 
you know, it's going to have to take up the slack from other for other businesses and, and other people. You know, it's funny, you say governments move slowly, because that's what they are. I, why is that the case? Like, when did that become the reality and the norm? It just seems like so. Maybe this is like one of the things that that could help these these people get just more of a grip on reality. I don't know. Um, but you mentioned the the boards meeting uh, and sort of the corporate angle. So we've got a couple stories on the site uh, about the the report, of course. Um, one of which is a piece on like, how you can get your board thinking about what the IPCC report means for corporate boards. And um, I love this because you know, <laughs> pretty pretty basic, but like you know, logical yeah, feedback, which is like. Read the darn thing uh, now. Now I don't know that I forget how many pages is it, but it's thousands of pages. Um, I think it's like thirteen hundred. Yeah. So the, yeah. <laughs> but the the summary, which uh, I think is pretty frankly pretty much what most people read, is like forty ish pages. And so if you can get your teams, uh, you know, not just the boards, but other business leaders within your organization to read, I think it, I think that's a great strategy. What What about you? Uh, what did you take away from this particular story, Jesse? Yeah, I think there was a lot of the person who wrote it, um, Hell Bank Jorgensen, obviously just outlined a lot of very basic things. And it's just kind of talk to your board, get them committed to it, read it. But I think something that um, the heated newsletter brought up to me that I didn't realize is that this report is really meant for policymakers and not for the public and not really even for media. So I would be really curious, like, what you know, what is different about it for policymakers versus for board members? Yeah. And I read that same uh, column that you're referencing. And the thing that struck out for me in that column was the fact that, and I didn't know this, I didn't realize this, there's no mention of fossil fuels, which is just, you know, it it makes me wonder why the summary is different from the, you know, I mean, it's, I guess it's one sense it's it's meant to be accessible, but there's definitely some, some, uh, some some things at play there. So I guess if you could get your board to read the whole 1300 page report, it would be better. But um, at the very least. Well, I think, yeah, that's what I was saying with the the policy. It's for policymakers. I wonder if the people who wrote the summary were like, we know fossil fuels is this word that just, you know, like shuts down politicians. And they were like, let's just not use it. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I mean, you could take that in in a good way or bad way. Like, you should call the blame right? You should point the finger. But at the same time, if it's going to turn people off, yeah, maybe move on. So speaking of moving on, let's go to our next story, which is your piece on AeroFarms, which I loved. It was a great, remind us what's going on with this company, because AeroFarms is a, is a pioneer in vertical farming that we've written about lots of times. Uh, it Their their initial facility is here in New Jersey, um, in Newark, which, and I love this story because they took over this like industrial area that had been abandoned and, and they created jobs. And, and I love that that sort of part of the AeroFarm story. They are going to be going public via a SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Corp. That's what it stands for. Um, but you had a chance to talk to quite a few people there. And um, why don't you tell us what you were thinking when you p- put this piece together? Yeah, yeah, they they're having a very big 2021. And as as much as we've as we've written about them, I, I literally felt like I felt the first paragraph, I was just listing all the things they were doing this year <laughs> yeah. because they're doing a lot, which I guess is what happens when you you get a big check and you start and you decide to go public. But basically, the three big things that I noticed was they're um, they're working on energy, which is a big issue for all vertical farms and and how to make it sustainable 
for the energy side of it. And something that didn't make it into the piece, but one of the C-suite that I talked to said, he said, the sun isn't free. And I kind of didn't understand exactly what he meant by that. But I think what he meant is, you know, just because the sun is free doesn't mean that growing outside is free and doesn't mean that it doesn't have environmental damage. So even though energy usage on vertical farms is really high and costs a lot of money and has a lot of emissions associated with it, there's a lot of other benefits about not using water, not u- not degrading the soil. But I still think that energy is going to be one of the biggest hurdles yeah. for for vertical farms. Definitely. I I totally agree with you. We had we've had a couple of really good pieces. Jim Giles wrote a, a, wrote about this issue earlier this year. And that continues to be a big issue, especially where you're like locating these things. And I know that that's a big consideration for aero farms. They have to think about where they put them, what state, what's the community like, what's the mix of energy, and how does that balance out against their their other goals, you know, things like I know they have a par- program to hire you know, they've got focus on diverse talent, right? And also people that don't have college degrees or that have been formerly incarcerated. They have a lot of social programs for their hiring going on. But that's a big consideration. I think one of the other things I really loved about your piece was the focus on the potential for other crops, right? So we think of, and, and my local supermarket has has uh, now regularly sells produce and leafy greens from uh, some of the vertical farming area. Uh, organizations in our in the New York state area, the New York tri-state area, there are quite a few actually. But the bear the focus on berries um, that that uh, Aero Farms is is now moving into is pretty intriguing to me because first of all, I love berries, strawberries, blueberries, etc. So what's what's at play there? Yeah, uh, Julia Kronick, who's the director of innovation startups at WWF and an author of this study on vertical farming, you know, she said that she'd seen everything grown in vertical farms, even like trees, which we don't really think of as being something that's grown in a vertical farm. So the the limiting factor for them is not the ability and the technology, it's really the cost of doing it and the energy inputs. And so they're trying to make it more efficient to grow something like berries or stone fruits or you know, different types of things that aren't just leafy greens. And really the way to do that is to make things more efficient and to pick on markets that have uh, a lot of value, which berries do. They are a perishable good. They're an expensive good. They're something that people want all year round, but don't grow great all year round. So they're they're very valuable uh, crop to expand into. So it really makes sense that this is where they're they're putting their research. All right, so another A company, Amazon, is our final story of the week. They introduced a couple programs last week focused on a couple of topics that I know are near and dear to our readers and and listeners' hearts, Um, reverse logistics and e-commerce, right? So what do you do with all those nasty returns and the person who orders five different versions of something and returns four? And how do you handle and make sure that those, um, those goods go further? And they have introduced, they've had, they've had programs in this area for a while, but they've introduced two new ones um, focused on smaller merchants, right? So how to help their small companies, the small companies that sell on their platform, resell things that are returned to them. Um, and that this is quite a, an interesting program for me um, for a couple of reasons. One is there aren't a whole lot of really concrete programs for small businesses to, to get better with their climate. I mean, we say we we here at Greenbiz focus a lot on the big companies, but there are small companies, of course, 
fuel the economy. I think I forget there are at least half the jobs in the United States is just as one and quite a bit of the revenue. So we, we, we can tend to forget that they're really the drivers of a lot of economic opportunity and activity and need to be addressed as well. They're also part of the supply chains of the big companies. So we, it's in, in everyone's interest to help them get better about their their waste management, um, and PS, maybe help them make money at the same time, which is always very compelling, especially if you're a small business, very slim margins and so forth. So Amazon's got a couple new programs. They're called the Fulfillment by Amazon Liquidations and Grade and Resell Options. So uh, Anna, uh, Elsa, our, our Elsa Wenzel, our longtime contributor, uh, took a, a stab at this one and has got quite a comprehensive piece about uh, what's going on. And, you know, I think I, I appreciated just the, the, the gesture, if, if nothing else. Anything jump out for you, Jesse? Well, I, I returned something to an Amazon hub yesterday at, at UC <laughs> Berkeley. So hopefully it ends up uh, back in someone else's uh, living room and not just in a landfill somewhere. Um, but yeah, I think you touched on it a little bit. But hopefully it's a, this can be a win, 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 possibly win, um, win <laughs> for the environment, win for Amazon to clear their shelves and win for the, uh, the companies to get a little bit more money from these returns. And then a win for the consumer because they can buy something that's a little bit cheaper and feel a little bit better about, you know, their consumerism, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, reverse logistics and returns have become a part of our e-commerce life. And, and I know from my previous days working in, in e-commerce tech that it's a really big hassle for them. And it's, you know, some places are trying to phase out ret free returns and all that stuff. So this might be a different way because consumers are just so reliant on it now. Yeah. And I guess I, for one of the things that I struggle with a little bit is how people know that they can do this returning. I, I don't know how, how much um, marketing is going to be done of this and just sort of the consumption habits in general. I mean, at, at Boma Brown West, who's a wonderful person who focuses on consumer issues, consumer health um, for the Environmental Defense Fund, she uh, helped Elsa with the story. She talked to her about it. And, you know, one of her quotes really jumped out at me is it quote, consumer products are the single largest source of environmental impact in our modern world, and their disposal is a large contributor to the billions of tons of municipal waste generated in the world every year, end quote. So it's like, I think just the average human, the average person just doesn't understand that. I mean, I think we, we just, you know, it's like, oh, I need a new um, foam roller for my workout. I'm going to go buy one. Like, and then what happens to that later when it's done? You know, like just, do I really need that new shirt? Do I really need this new thing? Or can I possibly get this used somewhere else? Um, and and hopefully, or this slightly, uh, you know, return, this returned item that has not, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I th that's, you know, and people return things to stores all the time and they get resold. So why not e-commerce? Yeah, so. yeah. Is this, when you talk about advertising for, do you mean advertising the, the returns to consumers buying it or to the merchants who might want to be part of the program. Yeah, you know what? Both, actually. Um, I mean, first of all, the merchants, I think the merchants will be happy to hear about it. And I'm sure, uh, you know, through their accounts, they probably are hearing about this program. I know they have a, a donation program that's pretty active. that has been in place for two years. Um, so my guess is that they're, that Amazon's probably got those communications locked down. But, you know, you, I, I just wonder, it's like, it, it goes to like this whole um, notion of extended producer responsibility for everything, right? Not just for 
things that could have a second life, but for things like packaging or the, you know, like who's taking responsibility for it? Almost all the time, it's like laid on the consumer. So like the consumer's got it. You just returned your thing. What did you have to do to return that? Did you? I had to buy a box from Home Depot, pack it up, buy tape and drive 15 minutes to UC Berkeley. So all that is emissions. There you go. That's all emissions. And it was on you and you're you took that initiative now. Yeah, I think there's also the, it's like how much was the thing that you bought? Like the thing I bought was around $100. So I was willing to buy a $1 box from Amazon and drive 10 minutes somewhere. If it had been like, you know, I actually I bought something from an Australian brand and it was going to cost me $47, which was more than the cost of the shirt I bought to send it back. So that's not getting sent back. Yeah, yeah, but... Anyway, this ish, this new program from Amazon, these couple of new programs, I think are, are definitely something that we need and, and hopefully we'll see more from uh, them and from other retailers. Our featured guest this week, Neha Palmer, is a familiar name to the GreenBiz community. As Google's first hired focused on data center energy, Neha was instrumental in helping Google become the largest corporate renewable energy buyer in the world, although Amazon eclipsed that achievement in June. But Palmer isn't here to gab about Google. Earlier this year, she left the giant tech company to become CEO of a startup in the electric vehicle charging space. That company called Terawatt Infrastructure is focused on helping develop a real estate portfolio that is primed for developers in energy and electric vehicle infrastructure. Neha, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Heather. So I have to ask you this first. Uh, what compelled you to leave Google, where the energy team is making a huge impact for this opportunity? It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, you know, I was at Google for a long time. Um, as you mentioned, one of the first employees thinking about energy at scale. And we had a lot of successes um, while I was there. We were able to bring the company to 100% renewable. And even more than that, I think we seeded a change in how corporations across the world buy energy. Um, so you know, what we had set as our goal is now the goal of many corporations and most corporations that have energy intensive operations. Um, so you know, that was an exciting thing to see from the start to where uh, when I left, um, you know, all the commitments that had been made. You know, and I think another part of it was we were really pushing utilities to also become green. And that also progressed quite a bit while I was there. And certainly there's a lot of work left to do in terms of greening the grid and making all generation carbon free. But as I started thinking about what I wanted to focus on, I really thought about what is the next big slug of emissions to attack. And emissions from transport are the biggest sector of emissions in the U.S. now. So thinking about that and what the opportunities were in that space, um, I realized that there was going to be a really big transition coming. Um, We've heard about electric vehicles for a long time, but if you think about things like medium duty and heavy duty vehicles becoming electrified, that's a huge amount of electricity. And so similar to my time at Google, thinking about how you convert data centers to using clean energy, um, I wanted to work on that part of the problem, which is what made me make this leap. Yeah, curious, uh, before we get into Terawatt's mission, uh, have you ever worked at a startup before? I have not. This is a new experience for me. All right. Well, so describe Terawatt Infrastructure's mission. What differentiates this company from other organizations focused on electric vehicle charging networks? 
Yeah, terawatt infrastructure has been purpose-built to focus on large-scale electrical vehicle charging infrastructure for fleets and fleets of medium-duty and heavy-duty vehicles. And I think the differentiating factor there is, first of all, the focus on fleets, but also these large-scale vehicles. Uh, we've had lots of conversation on the passenger side, which is wonderful. That's what's kicked off the industry. But what we see in the future is that this medium-duty, heavy-duty class will electrify even faster than what we've seen with passenger vehicles. Um, the cost of operation is actually already positive for shifting to electric vehicles compared to in internal combustion vehicles. So Terawatt's focus is helping uh, this transition happen faster and easier for large fleets that are hoping to electrify. Now, I know that you had some corridors, I think, that we're going to be focused on first, I noticed in the press release. Can you mention some of the regions? Absolutely. So we are uh, we have property in 18 states. Um, you know, the early thesis was to locate these uh, properties where early adopters of charging were going to be located. And so that is along uh, key highway corridors, which would obviously serve freight. So we call them class eight vehicles. For uh, those that are not familiar with the nomenclature of vehicles, that means large semi trucks, basically. Uh, so think of all the, the trucks you see rolling down the freeway um, or long stretches. And then another area that's had actually a lot of corporate support, um, similar to what you saw in terms of corporate man, uh, mandates for clean energy, has been the last mile uh, delivery and logistics. So a lot of other companies, you know, um, Amazon, FedEx, UPS, they've all made these corporate commitments to clean up supply chain and, and you know, clean up their operations. And this has been a major uh, pillar of that for them. Uh, so locations where uh, there's large concentration of last mile logistics and freight are other places where we've located our portfolio. Yeah. So since you bring up the fleet owners and managers, how should corporate EV fleet owners be partnering with your company? Yeah. And uh, what's really interesting is we're at the early days. And this is something else that frankly attracted me to uh, this industry, to Terawatt. We are just for the first time coming upon the scale of electric vehicle charging infrastructure that's going to be required for, say, an entire logistics facility or a bunch of class eight vehicles charging all at once. So it really is a conversation at this point about needs and thinking about how to incorporate some of the things that might be different about electric vehicle charging compared to traditional fueling. Um, with their operations and letting us know how we can structure things in a way that helps them have the least amount of disruption. So we are here to partner with um, anyone who has a large fleet uh, to help them think through what are the steps they're going to take. Uh, one thing that is really apparent is this is going to happen in steps. So what you see is with vehicle deliveries, someone might get 10 vehicles next year, 25 the following year, 50 the following year, and maybe electrify a full fleet, you know, four years out. So working with companies to help them plot out that trajectory and help them think through the infrastructure needs as they grow that fleet. Um, those are ways that we can help companies think through some of these issues. And then similarly, you know, as I asked about the regions before and, and now the corporate fleet owners, what about utilities? Like, are there particular utilities or, or markets where this makes more sense or is simpler to at least start with? California tends to go first. And so they've enabled a lot of policy, both at the state level with things like uh, credits, fuel credits, all the way to utility policy and utility programs that really support electrification. So places where they're already thinking about it is very helpful, but this is gonna be everywhere. 
Uh, there are fleets everywhere. And so I think it's going to be a 50 state solution here. Um, and thinking about specific locations is great to think about where you might get traction first. But our perspective is really across the US and really across the globe. This is something that's going to be everywhere. And so, you know, as far as utilities go, I think this is a really important point of collaboration with them. Um, knowing, uh, spending a lot of time over the last decade thinking about how to interconnect very large loads to the grid, that collaboration with the utility was critical to making that happen. And if you think about electric vehicle charging at scale, that'll be happening in way more locations than there are data centers and at similar sizes. And so having an early collaborative relationship with utilities and a plan will be very critical to enabling this rollout. Do you have any uh, partners right now that you can mention or? We're working with lots of different utilities and talking with lots of them, but nothing that we can say publicly. And then what about funding? Have you, have you, what kind of funding have you raised? Is that something you could disclose? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have been structured in a way to really carefully think about what's the best source of capital. And I think that's another distinguishing factor for Terawatt. Um, you know, what you see with a lot of the, uh, you know, early stages of electric vehicle charging, you have a lot of great startups that have great momentum, but they're oftentimes using their company equity dollars to go build out infrastructure. Um, there's a vast amount of interest out there for investing in this space. And so we have a dedicated pool of capital that can invest into these large scale infrastructure projects. Um, it's one thing to you know, be a VC investing in a company that's gonna you know, take off like a rocket, but infrastructure has different expectations. And so we're hoping by having that pool of capital, we're able to bring a lower cost of capital to building out this infrastructure and hopefully enabling that to happen faster as a result. Yeah. Speaking of infrastructure, electric vehicle charging infrastructure has been totally all over the news um, in this month. And uh, I'm just curious, how will the federal, or at least the proposed at this time, we haven't quite seen a deal yet, but how will the federal investments in EV infrastructure impact what terawatt infrastructure is going to do? So any focus on this is fantastic. I think, um, you know, there's two letters in EV, electric and vehicle, and a lot of the focus over the last years has been on that vehicle part of the equation. Rightfully so. You need the vehicles to actually, you know, make the transition happen. But what we see, and another reason why we established terawatt, is that this charging piece is going to be equally critical now to be able to scale. And so, you know, the things like uh, the establishment of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation are incredibly exciting. Um, first of all, because I'm an energy geek now working in transportation, but I do see that that nexus of energy and transportation and frankly, energy and everything is going to be critical to this next phase of what we see in electrification and the energy transition. So developing offices like that, um, the various incentives and programs that they're setting up for vehicle charging I think are critical. The vehicles are coming. The It's cost effective now, again, for corporate fleet operators to engage with this type of um, a vehicle. So making sure that they're able to do it as quickly and easily as possible, you're going to need that charging and you're going to need it to come quickly. So having programs that, and policies that support that are, are going to be fantastic. It's a good name. Terawatt infrastructure kind of like brings the, the two together, the, the energy plus the infrastructure. So I, I like that. Um, I have one more question for you. What's your priority for the next 12 months? Yeah, it's starting to build out these properties and working with corporates, customers, 
to do that. Um, you know, again, this is something that hasn't been built before. And so there's a lot of engineering, a lot of nuts and bolts work that we need to do. But we are super excited to bring this to the next phase and be able to meet fleets as they electrify and support them to do that without having to think too hard about the charging piece of it. So starting to build out what a installation looks like, um, starting to do that pre-development work, um, engaging with customers, it's all super exciting and, and where we're focused right now. Great, well, thank you for dropping by to GreenBiz 350. You just heard from Neha Palmer, the CEO of Terawatt Infrastructure. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com forward slash 350 for the weekly episode rundowns. Or you can hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to Jesse Klein for stepping in to co-host. I'll be back next week with my usual co-conspirator, Joel McCower. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.